Welcome to Dragon Talk, the official Dungeons & Dragons podcast. My name is Greg Tito. Or Hi. Greg Tweedo. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Sorry. That's okay. I will be, I'll be Tweedo for no, you. For you, you Shelly. Just cut that out, Ryan. <laughs> uh, how's it going? I feel like... It's uh, been a long time. It's been a long whirlwind of time since last week. When Do you we think... <laughs> yes. A few things have happened since then. Yeah, just a few. Uh, so we had uh, PAX, yep. that was, and uh, we had Storm King's Thunder come out. A lot yep. of people are enjoying it right now. Yep. What else is going on? I got samples of Widow's Walk. <gasps> the actual game? I did. That's they amazing. Came. They actually came. They actually arrived, and they're packed out in such a way. Like it's just. Do you feel <laughs> more emotional over yes. opening up? Uh, yes. A box of this than your own child? Yes. Yeah, all right, cool. Yes, I did. I told Nathan, like, I feel like I did get a little misty eyed when I saw the box. <gasps> and I tore it open, and there they were. It's happening. And I remember, like, when I saw Quinn for the first time, I was like, oh, he looks like one of the housewives from New Jersey. <laughs> He's flipping He's tables and everything. He's got so much hair. Like, why is it so far down his face? And it's just, yeah. babies are, ugh. You're like, no tears whatsoever. Yeah, like, no. Mm. If only he was like a uh, square box with yeah. a demon. With a know, witch on it. Witch on it. Yeah. yeah with it a, was, then you'd be like, oh, real tears. It was really cool. And we got to play it with um, several of our partners. That's fun. Yeah. Everyone was the betrayer. In a way. <laughs> They all wanted to be. <laughs> they all want to <laughs> they be. all wanted to be. That's cool. Yeah, so people are starting. It's out there a little bit in the wild. Chris Lindsay was demoing it also at a show this past weekend. Very cool. He was tweeting about it. Sweet. And it is out in stores when? October 14th. October 14th. That's amazing. It's like a month away. Sweet. Yep. So make your Halloween plans accordingly. There will be lots of game playing. You will be playing Betrayal at House. I'd like to see some cosplay of Magdalena, the uh, witch on... I might be. <gasps> All right. I'm just not going to wash my hair for the next <laughs> three weeks. It'll be like your anniversary weekend. <laughs> we were just oh, talking about. yeah. <laughs> oh, Bart. <laughs> it's good uh, to see you again. <laughs> Five years. <laughs> you can just give up now, right? Yeah, no, you're good. You're Why good. bother? I love it. Yeah. Sweet. Good stuff. Uh, so uh, we have amazing uh, guest today. Uh, yes. Mr. Matt Forbeck, uh, who is a very prolific author. I was going to say prolific. He's, that was it's like basically look. the definition of prolific. Yep. Uh, uh, but he contributed uh, a large amount of words to Dungeonology, uh, and we're going to find out all about it. From I feel him. like Dungeonology is a book that needed to be written. It needed to be. Yes. Yes. It called out. Be like, please write me. Yep. And it's a beautiful book. It is beautiful. Yeah. We've seen a few uh, uh, mock-ups and things here in the offices themselves, uh, and they are amazing. Yeah. Gorgeous. Uh, so if, for those of you who don't know, Dungeonology, I mean, we'll have Matt to tell us more about it, but it is a uh, kind of it's a book geared at uh, younger readers, not mm-hmm. necessarily kids, but definitely people who want to learn about uh, Dungeons & Dragons lore um, and uh, game mechanics from a very you know, uh, neat way. Like it, it, yeah. it introduces Story stuff. Storytelling sort of way. Yeah. It's not like, like we had a few books called like, you know, the, the uh, kid's guide to fairies and dragons and a things like that. A practical guide. A practical guide. Sorry. Uh, which was definitely very also much geared awesome towards books. children. Those are great. And yeah. I read them to my, to my kids now, Me too. which is awesome. Uh, but this one has more like bits and bobs that you can play with. You can open things up. There's pop-up books. There's like a, another book in it too. Uh, cool things to discover. So cool. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have that. And an, an intro from Elminster. <gasps> Himself? Yes. The, the Sage of Shadowdale? Yes. I was going to say the Bard of Shadowdale, which is not, maybe that's Volo, I'm not sure. Um, but speaking of which, uh, that's a really good uh, segue. Yeah, really, good, really good, good segue. You gave because I don't think we even knew because we have an amazing Lore You Should Know segment right now. Let's listen to it. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Welcome to Lore You Should Know. I am joined by two gentlemen who will give you many, many interesting Dungeons & Dragons lore threads you can weave into your game. Uh, First off is Matt Cernet. Howdy. And Mr. Chris Perkins. Hello, Greg Tito. Hello. Uh, So today we're talking about goblinoids. Uh, We use that term because there's 
three different varieties of, of monster that kind of fit into this family. Uh, and uh, was that always the case uh, back well, in the early days? Uh, orcs used to fit in as well. In, in sort of the very early days, the orcs were considered goblinoids, and um, I think maybe even gnolls at one point, but that might be wrong. And there were certainly other um, creatures added to the goblinoid list over time mm -hmm. uh, in various editions. There were sort of new goblinoid-ish creatures. I think kobolds might have been even involved in I think you're right, the yeah. term goblinoid at some point. But we, we've narrowed the term down yes. to be just the, the goblins. Goblins, hobgoblins, goblins bugbears. and bugbears. And it was with fourth edition that we we really tried to get a visual look to them that suggested they were cousins in a family. I see. Right. Uh, so yeah, there was no distinction of that group in the the first monster man. It was just like here's goblins, here's bugbears, here's gnolls. Right. Maybe they're related. Yeah, and I think collectively the term goblinoid just meant those evil humanoids you fight a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the the level one or lower mooks that you right. would, that you would kill yeah right uh, yes. and uh, so so out of those three goblins are the smallest correct they are hobgoblins are in the middle although they're by far the smartest and bugbears are the brutes although they're also the sneakiest it's true so let's talk about goblins first uh, what what makes and again this this monster has appeared in many other different kinds of fantasy you know kind of literature and, and, and other things but what what makes d and d goblins d and d goblins oh gosh uh, I mean I think we talked we referenced in when we were talking about orcs uh, deities and um, I would say that with the goblinoids there's there's something sort of similar going on, but it has to go in in sort of the the fifth edition vision of the goblinoids. Um, it ties back to Maglubiet. So previous editions, the goblins worship uh, Maglubiet and some other deities uh, for various reasons, and um, they like to kill things and steal stuff. And they were either mean or goofy or both, depending upon how you want to play them. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on. They were just sort of the, uh, they were between orcs and co and kobolds in a number of hit points and AC. <laughs> like, that was kind of what what yeah. you had. Um, with uh, in thinking about the goblinoids for Volos Guide to Monsters, uh, what we really wanted to do was again look at what uh, their relationship was. Why are these these different? types of creatures that look very different, behave very differently, related? Why do they think of themselves as related? I mean, you know, humans and dwarves and elves look very similar, but they don't think of themselves as very similar. They don't have the same pantheon of gods. They don't, you know, all worship the same over God necessarily. So what's, what's going on here with the goblinoids? And we came up with an answer to that, um, which leads to why goblins are what they are without the influence of hobgoblins, etc. So it's a little complicated. But essentially, Maglubiet, uh, the overgod of the goblinoid gods, is thought of as now at this point a, a conquering deity. Um, in previous editions, he's always been at war with Groomsh in uh, the plain of Acheron, where there are these giant tumbling cubes of metal and stone where there's fortresses and trenches and they crash together and the orcs and the goblins fight across these crashed together cubes and it's this giant ongoing war between the orcs and the goblinoids. And Megalubiet um, sort of emerged from that story and from uh, the, the goblinoid pantheon as a deity who conquered the other goblinoid deities. Mm. So, you know, whether or not Megalubiet is himself a goblin or not is sort of immaterial at this point. Uh, did, did the goblins become goblin-like because Maglubiet conquered their deities? Maybe that's a thing that happened. You know, so maybe they, they looked alike because Maglubiet has conquered all of their gods. You know, if Maglubiet conquered you know, Moradin, would now dwarves start to become things that look like you know, goblinoids or look like Maglubiet? Maybe mm -hmm. that's the case. And uh, so uh, goblinoids left to their own, or goblins left to their own devices are um, tribal and petty, and uh, they they have sort of superstitions about magic, and um, they worship uh, sort of gods that are are petty as well, and and so they they kind of um, 
I, I like to think of them as as midget Vikings. <laughs> like they're, they're sort of these greedy, uh, greedy little marauders. Yeah, these greedy marauders that that you know will run in and take things and 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 burn some stuff and run back out and um, but they don't necessarily occupy territory or you know that kind of a thing. They're unruly, yeah. basically, and they live in a society where basically the strong rule the weak. It's not much more sophisticated than that, generally speaking. And they could easily be intimidated by like a powerful wizard or some other powerful monster that's living in the same proximity to them. They basically kowtow to authority uh, and they're evil. So if, so why do hobgoblins, who you described as the, the smartest, why do yeah. they entertain their well, one, one thing to their, say about the goblins before we move on to the hobgoblins is their perceptions of Maglubiet are different from the other two as well. Okay. They're terrified of him, basically. The idea, the, the, the horror that a goblin experiences thinking about what happens when he dies. He goes to Acheron to basically serve as drag in uh, Maglubiet's army. That, to a goblin, is horrifying. Um, and so goblins really have a strong self-preservation instinct. Because they, they just don't want to They don't spend... want to go there. They don't want to meet Maglebiot. Uh They don't want any part of him. And that's where they believe they go when they die. Right. And is there any way they can redeem themselves so as not <laughs> no. to have that happen? <laughs> well, Volos Guide to Monsters does have uh, some... some uh, you, can, you can make a goblin character with the help of the book, and you might be able to be redeemed... But <laughs> by following general, a, a different god. In general, perhaps. goblins, uh, they wouldn't know how to redeem themselves. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the goblin concept of the afterlife is, uh, you know, if, if I die as a goblin with my goblin tribe or whatever, I go to wherever goblins go. And, and they have their, their, I think they have a couple uh, goblin deities that they mm -hmm. worship. Yeah. Um, and um, both of whom got their butts kicked by Maglubiet. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then that's that's okay. The problem comes when uh, basically hobgoblins, for one reason or other, round up um, bugbears and goblinoids together and mm -hmm. create a, like a massive war band. Because at that point, then everyone is marching to Maglubiet's drum, mm -hmm. and when they die in that conflict, then they know they're destined to. Uh, go and fight in the fields of Akron. Now, hobgoblins are basically D&D Nazis. Okay. Um, they're lawful evil. That is, they're tyrannical. Um, and uh, they have their eyes on every other domain around them. Um, but because they're wicked smart and because their leaders are smart, they play a longer game than some of our other evil races do, like orcs who will just sort of charge at the walls until there are no more orcs or or gnolls will basically you know eat opportunistically attack as they might and skirt around big cities if they don't think they can take it but they'll just destroy anything else in their path the the hobgoblins will mount an army they will collect their resources they will fortify their supply lines they will build fortifications and they will uh, lay siege um, they'll do smart things uh, to gain victory over their entrenched enemies. Yeah, I like to think of them as um, a bit too like the the Roman army when they have the influence of Maglubiot. So when they yes. when they don't have the influence of Maglubiot, when essentially the the sign isn't there to go to war because they haven't met some some goblins, they haven't met some bugbears, and sort of brought that that war band thing together. Uh, they're they're in a defensive posture where they're they're readying themselves for war, um, and they're they're sort of maintaining their their empire or their kingdom or their fiefdom or whatever you want to call it, however small or large that is. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they sort of have the call to war happen, and Maglubia is ostensibly sort of leading them towards conquest, then they're a bit more like the Roman army, where the Roman army, you know, it. It fought best on the field, and so it didn't turtle up behind walls, and it was always expansionist, and it was always conquering territories. And when they would conquer, often they would induct places um, into their own rule. So, so you know, uh, whereas orcs would come 
and uh, you know fight the the toughest people in town and loot kill, the place. Loot and the place, and they might hang around for a while if there's food and drink and, and uh, treat people help, you know badly and kill people and so on. But eventually, wander off when things you know aren't good enough anymore. The hobgoblins will take territory, and then you know they'll they'll make a deal with the people of the town. They'll say basically, hey, you know, send X number of people to join our armies. Um, you know, if you don't, we're going to kill X number of people. And, you know, you're now part of our empire, tithe to us this much amount on this much, you know, and then they'll sort of expand that way. And mm-hmm. So you can imagine in a D&D world, they're actually being hobgoblin kingdoms where there are cities and towns and so on within them that are conquered, conquered human or elf or dwarf. Or that whatever. have human elf dwarf populations still residing in them. Yeah. So they understand that... Uh, they're smart enough to understand that a society can be built from the ashes of taking over territory, and and, yes. and yeah. that it's okay to even though they're lost. And they do evil, build they do build their empires on the backs of other races, right? They're not like founding their the great nation of Hob, Hobglobia. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, and then do they? Uh, you know, you mentioned that they were tyrannical. What is it? A uh, feudal society? Uh, is that how they typically organize? They have a militaristic society of, of their own, and it's it's very rank-based and hierarchy-based uh, within their own society, and then they sort of apply that to whatever they conquer. Mm-hmm. Um, and They also draft goblins into various roles within their army. Um, they might be, goblins might be helping with supplies, with distribution of whatever goods, controlling Populations or slaves, just grunt work, basically. Right, controlling. Tra- um, so, like goblins are that are typically tasked with controlling enslaved and enslaved monsters. So, you know, something really dumb like a big ogre or something like that might have goblin minders that are taking care of it. Hobgoblins don't really worry about that. Hobgoblins also aren't really interested in taking and maintaining slaves. Like that's not really their thing. But they're happy to have the goblins do that job. And the goblins are happy to do that because they actually have a god who is a god of taking slaves and that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And so they start, when they have that big war band gathered together, the, the hobgoblins um, basically you know, use the goblins in the, the ways that they're best suited. So they tend not to use them as, for instance, front-rank fighters. <laughs> you know, they use them Unless as... Unless there's some tactical reason <laughs> yeah. why having a bunch of three-foot-tall Cretans... Here we go. ...is, is useful. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but maybe as archers or yeah. as scouts or as... Uh, they might have them... Um, uh, uh, goblins have a, have a strong relationship with wolves, like normal-sized wolves. And... Uh, and so uh, the goblins have uh, that might be riding wolves as outriders to an army that would then report back about various things, and you know. So you can imagine this uh, hobgoblin army as it's moving around. Um, you know, there's wolves howling in the distance, and that's that's actually that's not just wolves howling. That's actually sending a signal back to the army about X, Y, and Z happening in the front. Uh, mm. Hobgoblins also have a relationship with uh, ravens as sort of these. Um, birds that are, uh, you know, uh, pick the bodies of the dead and, and so on, and, and they use ravens as messengers in the field, and so great flocks of ravens are following them around and roosting with them, and so that's um, the thing that we haven't touched upon that I think is really interesting is the bugbears. Yeah. So bugbears are big brutish, brutish warriors, uh, but La- they're lazy as all hell. But they're really <laughs> lazy. They just can't be bothered. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I, th- I think of bugbears uh, as a lot like, um, you know, really large predators uh, in the wild. When you think of something like, um, say, uh, a lion or a tiger or, or a grizzly bear or something like that, you know, uh, it goes out and it hunts. But once it catches something and it eats, it's pretty much good. You know, yeah. it sleeps. Lay around. <laughs> for yeah. days on end. It's hard you know? work digesting <laughs> that piece. <laughs> yeah. So, and so what they really need is some motivation. <laughs> yeah, and so the, you know they 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 just they, that's their basic mode of operation is is small bands that um, will go out and get some some meat or some some treasure or loot or whatever, but then they'll retreat back to their little holes yeah. and they don't they can't be bothered doing. And their primary else. god is named Frogek, and he too was sort of conquered in a way by um, Maglobiet mm-hmm. and kind of serves Maglobiet in the capacity of a henchman. 
um, or a, a fellow, a, an underling warlord. So when bugbears run into hobgoblins, uh, the hobgoblins tend to bend the bugbears into line and make them do things that bugbears do well. And one of the things bugbears do well is sneak around because despite their size, they move very quietly and they've got a natural um, propensity uh, for for kind of getting around unnoticed. So like a, like a large predator, you know, yeah. like a cheetah or, exactly. or something that they can right. stalk. Yeah. And so if you need... If you need some some guys who are strong to like maybe sneak into a town and kidnap the mayor in order to use the mayor as leverage to make the town submit to your will, better to send a squad of bugbears into the town than to try to lay siege to the place. Yeah, so, so like I, when you imagine the giant war band on the move, the hobgoblins either um, they, they, they will bribe the bugbears in working with them and sort of cajole them into working with them. And the bugbears go along with it because that's... Um, it's easy food. Yeah, it's easy food for a while. And basically that's what... They sort of get lulled into this sense of security and, and ease of life. And they're allowed to... to and unlike, you know, the hobgoblins themselves who are very disciplined and the, the goblins who are getting bossed around, the bugbears just kind of lays around camp and, you know, yeah. they drink. Falls and they're actually called upon to do something. <laughs> right. You know, and they, they have... They're sort of allowed to do their own thing. But then, you know, when they're besieging the city and there's that wizard who keeps on blowing up the troops and stuff like that, uh, the, the hobgoblin commander will go over there with some bugbears and be like, that guy up there in that tower, that wizard's tower, go and kill him. And that's all he's got to say. And the bugbears do their thing. Right. You know, then they just kick into action because that's what they do. So the most fearsome goblinoid group is one that contains all three of these right. races. Yes. Sub or sub. So, okay, so this is a weird question potentially. Um, in D&D lore, we don't necessarily talk about crossbreeding between monstrous races very much, but in this case... Depends on edition, but... <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe that's a, that's a lore you should know on its own. Uh, but do bugbear and goblins, you know, are there no, offspring? bugbears don't fit in goblins. <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa. No, there's, there, there isn't... Again, it's one of those things where... where yeah, there's no... I mean, these these are conquered races that um, that have, in theory, been sort of formed by their con- their their um, the fact that they were conquered, and so they they aren't similar because they're they're um, necessarily hereditarily related, mm. or that they are of the same species even or anything like that. It's that um, they uh, they are mythically related. I see, and so their their priests might say that it, we are parts we are like you know not a caste system per se but like hey this is together we are stronger and and they're yeah. they're on board for yeah. that and uh, and you know i think within bugbear and goblin society uh, they they both know about Maglubiet and they know that their gods have been conquered by Maglubiet. Uh, and that's something that's inherent in their their myth and the stories that they tell one another all the time, over and over again, generation after generation. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't take the hobgoblins coming in and saying, "Hey, Magluga says this." You know, the hobgoblins kind of just have to show up. And if the hobgoblins show up, the the goblins try to run. <laughs> They're like, "Oh crap! <laughs> Not again!" <laughs> you know. But, but the buggers are like, "Okay, well, so what's the bribe, right?" And and then things just sort of fall into place and start moving. And that's that's when goblinoids get super dangerous. Is when they all start working together. It's interesting that Maglubiet is the uh, the, the glue the glue that holds it together because. You know, it's he or it is a more of a male associated yeah. game, right? Um, that they would uh, follow the one that's the, the ostensibly weakest part of of this group. You know, that it's a it's a goblin. Well, yeah. so he's described in in a lot of the the lore as a twelve foot tall black skinned goblin with like fiery eyes. Mm-hmm. Who, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, pretty scary. <laughs> okay, <laughs> to, to your average goblinoid. Um, now hobgoblins, when they die. They're happy to go and fight in the armies of Acheron. To die in battle is a great thing for any hobgoblin. Yeah, they have. Uh, there's like a whole aspect of a, a sort of a code of honor that they have yeah. in their society, and it's very military based and discipline based. And awful. Um, they have awful, awful, lawful, in, awful. <laughs> individual uh, tribes will have their own sort of. Um, 
banners of uh, different groups, so like that are in competition with one another. So there's sort of separate houses within tribes that are, right. you know, different military units that are, uh, you know, kind of in competition and stuff like that. So there's there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, attendant lore to all that. Cool. All right. Well, there's a lot to to pick on there. Part of me wants mm-hmm. to come up with a with an idea for a campaign where the the hobgoblins or the or the bugbears uh, uh, revolt uh, from from the control of Maglubiat yes. and to see what what crazy fun would happen. So there. Vola's Guide to Monsters uh, talks about all of these details and more and reveals things about uh, like goblin war camps and things like that. Introduces us to a bunch of new goblinoids, uh, in, in including some. More unusual. Yes, some some old and unusual favorites. <laughs> nice. Way to, way to la- uh, you know put that tidbit out there. Yeah. But uh, yes, you'll check that out uh, when uh, when when Volos comes out. But uh, thank you guys for for satisfying most of my curiosity about goblinoids. I feel like there's more to delve into, but we will much more yes. in uh, in the future. Thank you. Uh, that was a pretty good uh, Lori Cheneau segment. Yeah. I think, I think uh, uh, Chris and Matt know what to do they about know what those things. They're talking about. Yeah. We're uh, in the midst of uh, developing some new segments uh, that will kind of filter into this. Maybe some uh, really? some interesting things. I'm not going to tip my hat too much, but you won't always get a Lori Cheneau every week. We've been doing that for like two or three months now, but maybe we'll mix it up with some other more mechanics-based stuff or uh, some other maybe you know other things. Just okay. throwing it out there. Put, oh, plant in the at, seeds. Look at Greg Tito teasing. I, I, you might well just call me Greg Tizo. <laughs> I, I can get behind that. <laughs> <laughs> I hate myself. <laughs> you started that. I know. I really did. Uh, all right. So yeah, let's uh, let's get Mr. Matt Forbeck on the phone and uh, talk about some awesome stuff in Dungeonology. Okay. Hey there. How you guys doing? Hey. How you doing, Hi, Matt. Matt? Good. You sound good. Uh, yeah, you sound uh, pretty pretty darn good too. I'm looking at our sound engineer who's uh, gonna nod to me yes or no. Yep. We got oh, the nod. He's got the nod. All right. So, Matt, we're talking to you about uh, your contributions to Dungeonology and or the writing of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. but also it's a pretty big contribution. Yeah. You wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> Not just contribution, but, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, call it what you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we also wanted to, you know, find out more about you uh, as far as your Dungeons & Dragons background goes. So maybe that's a good place to start. Where did, uh, where did you first play Dungeons & Dragons? What was your, your, your first experience? Well, uh, my buddy across the street back when I was in, uh, going into eighth grade, I think, um, his mother bought the blue box D&D set on a blue light special at Kmart. Oh, <laughs> no way, a blue light special. And our moms got together and said, you know, you really ought to play this game with these kids. They were just trying to come up with some reason for me to get the hell out of the house and you know, be friendly with people. Nice. And uh, we started playing that summer. And, man, I tell you, I, we went through probably 30 or 40 parties that just had total party kills. <laughs> Because uh, we were playing with the basic D&D set, but we had the monster manual from AD&D. And mm. The AD&D monsters were so much tougher. <laughs> we got slaughtered constantly. But we, we, but we loved it. We had a great time doing it. That's how I got started. About how, uh, some, about how was, old were you? I was uh, 13 going on 14, I think. Okay. And I was, uh, no, actually, I was 12 going on 13. And the next year, I went to my first Gen Con, which was Gen Con 15 mm-hmm. way back in the day. So Jeez. this was my 35th Gen Con I just went to. Um, what? In a row, right? I just got hooked and I never stopped going. Have you, so you've gone for all 20 years? Uh, all 35, 35. years. Yeah, I haven't missed one since I started back when I was 13 years old going on 14. Um, oh my God, that's amazing. Subtraction's not one of my, my strong yeah, well, Part of it's because yeah, I grew up in southern Wisconsin, right? So TSR was 40 minutes up the road. And when I got off, I, I used to like play soccer. And then get off after practice and drive up to Delavan and play test games with the guys from Paysetter Games, which were all XTSR guys like Troy Denning and Kelly Sanchez and Mark Akers and Steve Sullivan, all these classic designers. Wow. And I, they had started a new company uh, after spinning off of TSR. And I used to just go up there and play test games with them when I was 16 years old. Just that's how I got hooked into doing this stuff professionally, actually. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's, I, I, what do you think it is about Wisconsin that kind of fomented this, this movement of, of, of role playing games? It's clearly because it's too cold here in the winter. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, I think that's part of it, actually. No, I think that's a lot of it. I mean, there's two major bases of, of role playing games, and it was Minnesota 
uh, particularly Minneapolis area where Dave Arneson was, mm-hmm. and then down here in southern Wisconsin where Gary was, right? Yeah. And uh, those, you know, even if you look at like the guys from Atlas Games and Lisa Stevens and Jonathan Tweet, all those guys came out of northern Minnesota as well, right? Mm-hmm. And there were a ton of people out of southern Wisconsin. It's because it's so cold in the winters, you have to come up with something else to do, right? Right. Beats cabin fever any day. Yeah, you basically got to go to different places uh, all, all throughout it. Yeah, in your head at least, right? So, yeah. So uh, do, do you think, and this is a theory that uh, a friend of mine, actually I think you know him too, Tavis Allison? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, he said that the, you know, going to the those that area where there's like farmland and you go, you know, there's, there's farmhouses, some of them are dilapidated and old, but then there's many miles in between. Like that also w- was part of what made Dungeons and Dragons feel uh, uh, like part of that landscape was that the landscape actually felt like you were you were adventuring so yeah, maybe in the summertime you got to do that especially if you like wandering around the woods in the summertime and you know some of the cities have very prosaic names here like waters and meat or battle creek or oak park or whatever you know mm-hmm. it sounds like they come right out of a D book essentially yeah and there's lots of uh, uh open country to explore exactly yeah, if you like to hike or bike or just wander around the woods or hunt or fish or whatever it's a great area for that and you can basically pretend you're a D&D character. Yes, exactly. Exactly. As long as you bring your sword and you wander around the woods and nobody sees you. It's okay. Cheese, cheese and beer. Yeah. There is cheese and beer, too. I so. think that's probably what the tavern. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that makes sense, too. Yeah. It's got a whole very much like pub crawl. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. There's a lot of evenings where you're like, oh, there's a mysterious stranger in the bar. You know, just, yeah, <laughs> <terrible>. <laughs> and that's just every night in Wisconsin. Yeah, Always yeah, mysterious. You're the mysterious stranger. You just don't realize it. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't spot the mysterious stranger in the bar, it's exactly. because you are the mysterious stranger. Exactly. This all makes sense. I like it. So you transitioned from uh, uh, playtesting games when you were around 16 to, to – was that when you started writing fantasy? Uh, actually, my, yeah. One of my first things I did, uh, first publication I ever had was in Polyhedron, like number seven. Oh, cool. And I, had, uh, I was a runner-up at a top-secret gadget contest. And, what? Uh, th- yeah, way back. And I, my, my prize was a – Years worth of membership in the RPGA. Right? <laughs> um, Congratulations! You get to hang yeah, out with us every week. You get to read more stuff. It's cool. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I ended up going to college, and I, I fell in with a guy named Troy Denning and Will Nabling. Um, and Troy was a longtime Wizards or TSR guy. Uh, Will was the first salesperson ever for TSR way back in the day. And I started doing sales for uh, for Will for Mayfair Games and Iron Crown Enterprises and Grenadier Models and a whole bunch of other ones when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And as I did this, they were bringing out to different game conventions like Gen Con and Origins and the Gamma Trade Show and whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, guys, I can help you write some of this stuff too, you know. <laughs> They're like, okay. So they finally gave me a chance and I started writing when I was in college. Uh, I think I, my first published credit was working, I wrote the rules for the Myth Fortunes uh, board game for Mayfair Games way back in the day. Nice. That uh, Will and a guy named John Danovich had actually designed, they gave me the rules to write. Um, I, after I got out of college, I ended up working for Games Workshop on a student work visa, uh, just on a lark. Just you know, literally had a one-way ticket to Europe, flew to London, interviewed for a job, got a job three days later, and was there for six months on my work visa working for Games Workshop wow. in the Nottingham Design Studio. Um, just lucked out of my brains, right? That's crazy. And then came back and I started freelancing. I freelanced for many years, and uh, eventually then I started a company called Pinnacle Entertainment Group with a guy named Shane Hensley. And we did a game called Deadlands, which did a, uh, we did all sorts of different things, zombie cowboys with that, mm-hmm. all sorts of awards. And then we started having kids, so I ended up moving back to Wisconsin where we got free babysitting, which is <laughs> hard to beat. You know, yeah, so. for sure. Yeah, it really is. I still haven't figured that part out. No. Uh, free babysitting, it's tricky. Yeah, yeah no. Well, I keep moving like away from family. Parents and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, fortunately for us, it was a good thing because we ended up, um, we moved back here in like 1999 and then in 2000. One, my wife became pregnant with quadruplets, actually, that were born in 2002. And we were just fortunate enough to be back home where, you know, we had lots of people we could call for help. Oh, my God. Quadruplets. I'll never complain yeah. about my one child again. I know. Shelly does. <laughs> Shelly often complains about the one child and so how hard it is. So hard. And I'm with like, my I have two. three-year-old. And then Matt's like, yeah, by the way, I mean, because you have your, your, your quadruplets and then you also have other children, correct? Well, those... Marty was my eldest, who's 17, as a senior in high school. Wow. And then Pat, Nick, Ken, and Helen are now freshmen in high school. So I have wow. five kids in high school at once in a moment. Wow. <laughs> it makes for a good gaming group, though. They really enjoy playing games. I yeah. take them to Gen Con every year. We go to other local conventions. We did uh, Nexus Game Fair in Milwaukee. Uh, I took Marty to Comic-Con. We're going to be going to 
Game Hole Con up in November. Oh, and, that's a big one. A lot yeah, of our guys are going fantastic. there. Now, they have a great crew there. They're actually running True Dungeon there for the first time it's ever been outside of a Gen Con. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm really looking forward to playing that again. It's a lot of fun. That would be cool. Are any of your kids following in your footsteps in uh, writing or design? or? I think they're smarter than that, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I think a lot of they all enjoy games because my house is full of them, right? So uh, it's kind of hard to avoid. We have you know video games because I do video game writing nowadays as well. And tons and tons of tabletop stuff and books and comics and all sorts of other good fun stuff. That's amazing. Um, so that's the stuff to distract some of them, and others are more industrious. We'll see how they all turn out. It's hard to tell. <laughs> Many, a couple years before they have to start to decide like what they're going to do with their lives, for sure. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, they, this stuff can remain a hobby. I think it's actually easier to enjoy it uh, if it remains a hobby mm-hmm. as opposed to something you're doing full-time with yourself, right? Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And I think I, your, your son's a really good role player. I remember playing with him at, uh, at GaryCon uh, back in the day. God, it was That's awesome. right. Yeah. We played uh, Adventure King. What, what was the game again? Uh, yeah. Adventure Conquer King System. That's it. X. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. It yeah, was. He really enjoys it. He, he actually uh, picked up uh, Phoenix Dawn Control or Dawn Command, uh, Keith Baker's new game. Oh, neat. And this year and already ran it for his cousins. So. That is amazing. Um, and we've been playing fifth edition a bit. They, they forced me to play fifth, fifth edition at every convention I go to. So. <laughs> we have a great time with it, though. It's a lot of fun. Cool. So, uh, so yeah, how did you get involved with uh, uh, doing the writing for Dungeonology? Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, uh, the guy who, one of the guys working over at uh, Templar or King's Publishing or whatever imprint they're running under when I talked to him at the time, this guy named James Tavendale. And James and I had done a few books uh, a few years ago, I did something called More Forbidden Knowledge, which was 101 things you weren't supposed to know how to do. <laughs> um, and then uh, we just kind of kept in touch. And I think I sent out my Christmas card this year, and he happened to be on the list. And he says, oh, God, I got the perfect gig for you. I got this. We just licensed uh, D&D for an ology book because he's over at the company that does the ology books now. He said, you'd be perfect for it. I'm like, yes, yes, you're right. I would be. So, <laughs> let's do that. And, you uh, say that for any job, though, right? You'd be like, yeah, no, that's uh, me. I can do that. Yeah, I can do that, too. I, uh, I pitched. I, I slough off to other people. I, I was. Uh, I was playtesting Secret Hitler, the new game for the guys who do Cards Against Humanity, with uh, Ken Height and Will Hindmarch down at their Chicago offices of Cards Against Humanity. And we're having a great time. And uh, Max Temkin says, "Hey, I'm looking for a guy to do a comic book that'll explain the background of the Weimar Republic and what's going on here." I'm like, you know, I I've done a lot of comic work. I could do this, but Ken is one of the best historians I know in the world, and mm. he really would be a much better writer for this than I was. So I said, Ken, take it away. And he did. He did a great job. Nice. No finder's fee, though. That's, that's too bad. No, no, no. I got, <laughs> I got, I got a nice prototype got, uh, copy of the game and uh, had a lot of fun playing it. So I, that was payment enough. I got to read Ken's writing, too. That's cool. I haven't played that game yet. I think I'm, uh, I am think I have to wait until after this political season to really jump into it. <laughs> yeah, they do have ones where they actually the, the uh, Kickstarter backer kit came with Trump stickers you could put over the fashion. I cars. saw. I know it's amazing. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, but uh, so yeah, tell me. I mean, for listeners who may not know about what the Ology series is, what uh, what is that? What is that series all about? Okay, the Ology series is a series of books that are basically for kids like uh, eight and ten or twelve and up, and they're like sixteen to thirty-two page books built on cardstock, and they're all sorts of fun things, right? They start out with Dragonology. And then they did spyology and ufology and Egyptology and all sorts of other different ones. And they're just the coolest books for kids, right? You, you pick them up, up and they have like little flaps in them and little booklets you can open up and other little uh, tchotchkes and trinkets you can play with. Um, and it's just kind of a neat, fun book. You know, it's, it's the, kind of the perfect holiday gift, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, and, you know, these books, I, I had a bunch of them from before. They sent me an even larger stack because my kids have read a lot of these. They sent me a huge stack of these, and I got a huge stack of D&D books, and I had to figure out how to merge them together <laughs> into one reasonably sized book. So, that Yeah, really that seems like that would be the, the challenge here. How do you distill all of that D&D lore into these pages? Yeah, the trick is you got to skip a lot, right? <laughs> you can't get everything in. No, exactly. I mean, you can't go through the entire history of the Forgotten Realms. No. Uh, as much as I would enjoy that, that's really a book for, for the hardcore grognards who love this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but for the you know the, the kid who's a you know a tween essentially who wants to read this stuff or you know even older person who wants to read this stuff just for fun, mm-hmm. um, it's just a nice overview. You know, and honestly, when I was even when I'm doing research for books nowadays, the first books I turn to instead of going deep into like you know the history of Alexander Hamilton in twelve volumes, I'll go pick up a kid's book, right? Because it gives you a nice overview of everything with lots of pictures yeah. and illustrations and gets you really deeply involved in it in a very visual way. And then you can decide if you really love this stuff enough to make the deep dive, right? 
So I think a book like this is a great introduction for people who maybe don't know a ton about the Forgotten Realms or maybe haven't seen anything for D&D for a few years and want to get back to it, right? But it's also a great thing to like bring in younger kids for getting involved in the hobby as well. So did you come up with the outline? Did you say this is what I think should be in here? These are the villains I think should be in here. This is, you know, what we should talk yeah, about. Essentially, okay. essentially they came okay. and said, we want you to do this. We th- it needs to be about this long. Go. And I said, okay, here's an outline. And then I worked it back and forth with them, and I worked it back and forth with the wonderful people at Wizards of the Coast, uh, who actually were really, really helpful, to be honest with you. And uh, Yeah, Hillary, Hillary Ross did a great job, I think, uh, uh, being the liaison going back and forth. Yeah, Hillary was fantastic. And there was a guy we worked with, too, his name is escaping me. At the Adam? Moment. Adam Lee? Adam, exactly, yeah. yeah. No. He's great. He was fantastic as well. They both had just great insight, and anytime I had a question about anything, uh, they were just right there with Nancy, right? It was fantastic. And part of the problem, of course, is that the Forgotten Realms has changed a lot over the different editions. Mm. So, um, and they know more about what's going on in fifth edition than I possibly could because I'm not in house, right? Yeah. Um, so they were able to answer all sorts of questions, say, "Well, yeah, this is what's going to happen, but maybe you don't want to tell that much. Maybe you just want to tell this much, right? And, uh, maybe you won't hook people with this bit here because that's going to be coming out in a book from Bob Salvatore or Ed Greenwood or whoever around that same time, and we're willing to let people see that kind of a thing." Um, back when we were just starting this out, they were about to come out with. Uh, uh, the new Strahd campaign, the new Ravenloft campaign, right? Right. And so I got a whole bunch of information on that. I was able to stick in there too. Excellent. So it actually is like a companion piece to not only, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and fifth edition, but like our current storylines. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's, it's re- really immersive right up to the moment, right? And in fact, there's stuff that's in there that's uh, not going to, not going to be published in the other stuff quite yet. So it might be a little bit of a preview for some people as well. I love that. I love getting that little tidbits. People, it mm-hmm. makes it almost like a puzzle book. Like, find out yeah. where the stories are going. And suddenly, on somewhere on the internet, there's a uh, conspiracy theory. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> we just talked about it. So therefore, another one. Just uh, you know, it's, it's like when a bell rings, an uh, angel gets its wings. Like uh, yes. when we talk about conspiracies, they appear. <laughs> they, just, oh, <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> they are born. There's we just we just built a a Reddit thread out of our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, we talked about how this is a great thing for, uh, you know, uh, kids. And, of course, we're both parents of, of, of kids and how it's a great way to, you know, bring it, you know, hey, here's a gift to, to, you know, hey, here's part of our world and our life. But is there anything in there that you think uh, that uh, adult fans of D&D would want to get into besides, of course, the, the secrets we were just talking about? Yeah, well, one of the neat things is that the book's actually separated into two booklets. There's a main booklet that has got a lot of the information that's just overview, like this is how you put together an adventuring party. It's actually told by Volo Gedarm, right? Uh, the guy who did all the Volo's guides to the realms. Oh, we know so him well. His voice, right? And it has an introductory letter that's actually a separate letter folded up in an envelope that you have to open up from Elminster that was written by Ed Greenwood himself, actually. We got Ed to, to pitch in that letter for us. Oh, Ed. Uh, so that first part of the book is all about the overview about, you know, what do you need to do to go to a dungeon? Who do you need to partner up with? What is this really going to involve? And then there's like a separate book in the back that's, I forget, like 16 pages or so that tells you really the history of the realms and what's going on and uh, brings you up to date with everything. And I think that book there would be really intriguing for people who are just D&D fans in general, right? Uh, part of the other stuff they probably already know. It'll be fun to flip through and see all the little different uh, features that they've tossed in the book, you know, the little flip-ups and uh, the pop-outs and all that kind of stuff. The map alone is actually going to be pretty fantastic. It blows up to about, I think, two or three times the size of the book, which will probably be the biggest map of the Forgotten Realms that's been produced in the last, you know, six, seven years, something like that, maybe that's longer. That's cool. That's true. I've seen I've seen the prototype version of it uh, uh, here in the office, and so the, the book is you know a standard like eight and a half by eleven kind of size. Uh, 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 you're right. The map ends up being much bigger than that. It's amazing. Yeah, it's got this really cool fold out feature that, uh, and it folds right back in too. Not like the kind you usually see in a in a, in a uh, map or in a book where it just like <laughs> folds into squares or whatever. This thing folds out like a flower. It's kind of insane origami. Yeah, yeah. Not like those. I was just gonna say most people don't even know about how annoying it is to fold up maps. <laughs> Oh, yeah. nobody has actual physical maps the in their maps car anymore. anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but gosh, I remember being like, no, you have to fold it this way. Yeah, I could never that, do it right. Yeah. Yeah. Only D&D players know this pain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I like the idea of uh, that booklet you were describing that has like a little bit more of history of the Forgotten Realms being like an in-game artifact that people could use. Yeah, cool. exactly. And there's some other in-game artifacts. too. There's a little mini booklet that's like a monster manual, another little mini-game booklet that's uh, a spell book, you know, all sorts of little, Ooh, cool little things to get people not just, uh, you know, information, but a flavor for it as well, right? 
there's some beautiful artwork that's been designed that goes all the way through. I'm, I'm just dying to get my hands on a copy myself. I haven't got my advanced copy yet. So I've seen PDFs, but it's not quite the same. It is yeah, not the same. I'm look, actually looking at the PDF right now. I'm like, oh, I can see like where the little pop-up's going to go or where the, yeah. the little pocket's going to go. Yeah. I can't see it. And it's cool with it with something like this because ordinarily we wouldn't get advanced copies of a book we're printing, uh, uh, you know, until like a, a week or two before it's published. But we've been getting prototypes because the mechanics of how they all work is super important to developing the book. Um, so yeah, we've seen the foldouts and all those things and be like, oh, this doesn't quite work, and you know, oh, this makes a crease in the map that we don't want it to have there, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so it's been amazing just seeing that and uh, seeing the development of it as a as a, as a book product. Yeah, I mean, I've not written anything for D and D for a few years, so it's been kind of cool to get back to it. I wrote a bunch of stuff for second edition, third edition, uh, I think a couple tiny things for fourth edition, and it's kind of neat to be able to do this with a fifth edition product. Yeah, very cool. And I liked that uh, uh, the the Volo and Elminster dichotomy is part of it as yeah. well. Yeah, exactly. It's fun having Ed, Ed tell everybody that my character is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, because you're, you're writing from the idea of, of Volo, right? From the voice exactly. of Volo. Yeah. I didn't know that uh, Volo's full name. I, yeah. I didn't realize Volo was short. Volothamp Getarm? Volothamp. Exactly. I could, you know, Volo. Volo works. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to name my next child Volothamp. I'm sure your wife would love that. Yeah, I'm getting a your wife. I'm going to guess. I know, probably. I'm sure she's going to love the idea of on, that you're but, having another child. But Volo Tito? I mean, that rocks. Volo Tito is Volo actually Tito. a good name. Yeah. It's, uh, I also appreciate that you have pronunciations in here throughout. Yeah, that was a key idea, especially for kids yeah. who don't know this kind of stuff. Especially and for adults. me, honestly. <laughs> I know. I didn't, oh, I didn't know that's how you pronounced it. It's very if funny, too. Up, Growing up, if you went to the Monster Man, you're like, oh, God, how do you pronounce this? Or even, you know, like all the different French pole arms that Gary touched in the first edition. <laughs> yeah, I probably just won't use those ones in my campaigns. Probably not. Uh, Can't pronounce them. them. <laughs> I know. It's funny when you meet someone who has only read those words and not said them out loud. And yep. the two of you compare pronunciations and you're like, oh, oh, that's how you Sounded say it. Sounded different in my head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just hearing the different yeah, pronunciations. I kids do that all the time. I'm like, you know, that tells you something about the person is that they're a really good reader. Right. Mm. That's not anything to ever be ashamed of. Right? It's fantastic that you're a good reader, even if you your your reading vocabulary ex, uh, extends past your verbal vocabulary. That's a wonderful thing. I mean, it means you're you're stretching your brain, and you're doing uh, good things with it, and trying to explore new things. I'm all for that. So you've written everything, pretty much. You've written <laughs> kids' books. You've written adult, like adult fiction, right? Yep, I've written a lot. I've got and thirty novels out at the moment, or more. Thirty novels. Uh, a bunch of uh, more games than I can count. Yeah, uh, Marvel Encyclopedia that came out. I did the 2009 and the 2014 edition. I had a Captain America book come out last uh, uh, back in March or April, just in time for the film that was celebrating 75 years for DK Publishing. Um, I've written. I've got Halo novels I'm working on these days. I just had a uh, one come out back in March, and I got a short story coming out, the anthology coming out in November, and more on the horizon, hopefully. And all sorts of good things. So um, how how are you? And you're a dad to five yeah. children. So how what's your uh, like? How do you prioritize, or what is your what's your day look like as one of the most prolific writers we've ever talked to? <laughs> well, this is my full time job, right? So I, I feed my kids this way. So that's my incentive. People say, "How do you keep yourself focused?" I'm like, you basically, yeah. just nail your mortgage right above your your keyboard and go. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, it's uh, I try to get up when the kids go to school, and then work until they come home. And then I spend time with them when they come home or I go have to pick them up, depending on what. And nowadays, they all can get driven home by my eldest, which is really, really nice. Oh, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, I just try to focus on that. And often after everybody goes to bed, I'll end up working a little bit more after that, too. Um, but part of it is because it's fun, right? It's just it's a lot of fun to do this kind of stuff. I enjoy it. Um, I had somebody ask me once when I was working on the Captain America book, I think it was. They say, how long did it take you to do the research for that? I'm like, only, and they say, only all my life, right? You've been doing it for fun anyway. Sure, you have to go back and make sure you have to second source everything and try to remember stuff you read 30 years ago. But um, it's still just such a great joy to be able to take the stuff that you enjoy and make a living at it. So I, I try to make sure that I get to do that for as long as I possibly can. That's I very think you cool. need to treat a fortunate career like that with some kind of respect so you don't blow it. Yeah, and it sounds like you had a a, a very uh, fostering parents, you know, to be like, oh yeah, you like something that that would be like this, yeah, yeah. enjoy it. Go play this game. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, no, they're very good about that. They uh, they also encouraged me to go to engineering too. Which they're like, oh, you can't make money as a writer. You need to get an engineering degree too. Um, <laughs> so actually, when I was in college, I had a, a five-year degree program where I was going to get a BA in creative writing and a BS in electrical engineering, creative uh, computer science, and in, in five years, right? And I'm yeah. like, okay, I'll get this done. And that way, I'll just write in the evenings. And about two years into the program, I realized if I got the engineering degree, I was never going to write because I was just going to come home, I get the engineering job, the computer science job. And I'd come home and say, geez, I want a beer. I want to play a game. I want to see my girlfriend. And I was just never going to make the time. So I dropped the engineering program. I graduated in three years instead with my creative writing degree and then just dove into the deep end. I figured if I blew it in a short enough period of time, I could always go back and finish my engineering degree and then go back. Mm-hmm. Right? Get a job that way. But in the meantime, I was young. I didn't have any debt. It was uh, a good time to try crazy things and make foolish mistakes. We're glad you did. <laughs> I'm glad I did. I, just, I, I told my dad about this the other day. I said, I'm just, I tried to make sure I didn't have a midlife crisis. He says, actually, you had a midlife crisis, but you were a sophomore in college at the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a lot better than how it worked out for me because I think I, I was a theater major and I'm like, I got to have another one. So I did English as my, as my, as my backup. Yeah. So I ended up with two useless degrees, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, they've done you well. Look where you are. You're doing, you're doing a great job with a great company, doing fun stuff. That's right? true. That's true. In spite of what my uh, what my parents thought uh, uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, and they were, I wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons. They're like, "No, you can't do that." And I'm like, "Well." And now every day, whenever I visit them or they visit me, I'm always like, "See, making um, a living." Yeah, uh, yeah. There you go. I did it. <laughs> I didn't even have to, you know, read 40 years of comic books in order to do it. <laughs> Like but you, you could have. I could have. I could have. Instead, it was it was D and D books for me. There you go. Yeah, I read all those books. I read everything I get my hands on. You know, whatever it was. But yeah, comic books and D and D, anything that was geeky, I was very much into in those days. Still am. So. I think, uh, and I think Dungeons and Dragons, especially. Uh, uh, goes back to a little bit where we were talking about vocabulary and learning new words and stuff. Like, I feel like I learned how the world works and how language worked by reading those books. In some yeah, ways. You know, there's yeah. an interesting subtext that runs through all, all through Dungeons and Dragons too that says a team is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Yeah. I think there's some really neat things to be learned that way that uh, teamwork and working with other people and relying on other people's skills and learning how to manage that and manage it together as a team really is, these are skills that will serve anybody well in life, whether you end up being a writer or a DJ or a soldier or whatever the heck you end up doing, right? Just good to have those kind of uh, basic concepts down for kids. I think it's wonderful for yeah, and the idea that people have different roles to fill, and, mm-hmm. and you know, there, there's different, you know, you work on people's strengths and try to, you know, mitigate weaknesses. Like wait your turn. Wait your turn. Mm-hmm. Wait your important. turn. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're not always the star. Sometimes someone else gets to have the glory. Yeah. Sometimes the stories end up in failure, and that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, and how to get Sorry, bounced it's back. Just super interesting. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. That's where drama comes from. No, it's true. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I try to teach my kids with games, right? And I think uh, games are wonderful because you get to learn this stuff in a very safe environment, right? Uh, even if you're a little geeky and a little shy and a little introverted, a game like this can teach you how to not be those things, right? yeah. how to be a little bit more extroverted, how to be a little bit more outgoing and, and friendly and such. And I think it's uh, been a wonderful help for lots and lots of people over the decades. Yeah, well said. We have heard that. It's almost like you're a writer. You can come up with good things it's to do. Right. <laughs> thought about this stuff a lot. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just talking about my life. Again, it's, it's all it is. <laughs> nice. So what, uh, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that the, this Dungeonology book would be a great uh, gift uh, for the holiday time. Do you think this is something that uh, a lot of parents should look at? Yeah, you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that the publisher is going to come out with in November. Right? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, and I, I think it's, it's just a great idea. If you've got a kid who likes fantasy stuff, uh, like if they're in the Lord of the Rings or you know, Narnia or uh, even um, the Hunger Games or whatever, anything that's kind of fantastic. And maybe what you call them D&D curious, right? <laughs> yes. You know, they don't really know what it is, but they've heard about it. They've seen people play it. Maybe they watched uh, Stranger Things and they saw the kids playing it on that. Um, and and they don't really know about it. This is a perfect way to introduce it to them in a very gentle way, right? Yep. You're yeah. not going to throw a rule book down and say, here, read this and get ready. We're about to play you're just going to say, hey, here's some cool stuff to take a look at. If this intrigues you, then maybe we can move on to trying, you know, the introductory set or whatever, right? Right. Um, and I think, you know, and if it doesn't intrigue you, then, hey, you know, go on in your life. You'll just, you'll know more about D&D. And you'll be able to have a conversation with the people who like that kind of stuff. You'll learn something 
the language. You'll understand that uh, this is where a lot of this stuff came from. If you're a World of Warcraft player, you can look at it back and say, oh, this came before that. Holy cow, right? <laughs> right. Um, this inspired everything. <laughs> exactly. It gives kids, it gives people, kids, whoever, a sense of history and a sense of what's going on and a sense of where it is now, I think, which is you know, even a, a more interesting thing. You know, D&D has been out for, I don't even know how many years now, over 40 years, obviously. But, yeah, 42, um, I think, right now. There you go. But it's uh, so it's got a long history behind it that is older than some, a lot of its players at the moment, I think. And it's good to know how it's evolved over the years and why things were done differently in the past. And you know, why do we don't use chits anymore um, to draw instead of dice? <laughs> First box that ever had had chits in it, which were little counters. You had to actually write numbers on them, draw them out of a cup, which was you know, uh-huh. before they even had dice. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't know that. I, I yeah. remember the, like, uh, the the blue box, like you mentioned, uh, uh, and then you had the dice on it that didn't have any markings. So you had to like take the crayon yeah. and put yeah. the markings on it. I remember that. I don't remember the yeah, chips. My brother-in-law broke that out actually over over the holidays. He showed me his old set and, and he had some dice that had never been marked in with a marker. Oh, wow. Like, Holy cow. Um, I had some that, you know, they're from that age that are now like, my 20 setter is actually round. There are no yeah. There was something about that plastic that actually wore down more than than the dice that are manufactured now. Because I remember seeing a lot of it is, is is stuff that just is you know wear and tear. With wear and you tear would on wear those dice, the edges off your dice. Yeah, yeah well, wow. I'm sure the manufacturers are looking at it like, yeah, who's going to roll that this many times? It's going to yeah. roll that. Yeah, you know, what the fuck? Twenty thousand pieces. Even a year, you're like, yep, they're around. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, fun. So it's like the engineers that do like, oh, this USB you know cable can be unplugged and plugged in you know twelve thousand times. Who's ever going to do that? And like, this dice can yeah. only be rolled. You know, twenty thousand times before it'll start, and you know, yeah, over the course of a forty-year campaign, <laughs> it's gonna get worn. Down. It's gonna get worn down. Exactly, it's true. It just happens quickly enough. And now we have stuff. You know, we have amazing things you can do with games. You know, besides electronic stuff, but just the dice you can see that are put on Kickstarter and all the different ones that the different companies do, and all the different shapes and sizes. Are you a fan of that? Like to go into like uh, those conventions and seeing like the Chessex, uh, uh, you know, setups and have seen yep. all the different dice. I love that. No, it's amazing. The Zaki Hedron, the hundred-sided die, right? Just what? hundred. <laughs> have you never seen that? That's no. Lou Zaki. Who, Lou was actually the first ever game distributor. Uh, first guy ever did distribution of games from uh, publishers to retail stores, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, colonel Lou Zaki he was an Air Force colonel. He's still out there. He still goes to conventions all the time. In fact, I saw him just a couple months ago. He's at Gen Con. Nice. Um, and uh, Lou... Uh, came up with, he used to sell dice, mostly Chessex dice, then he came up with his own dice he was publishing, creating, and one was the 100-sided die. It was like a golf ball, practically. And he called it the Zaki Hedron, right? But <laughs> Lou was this incredible character. He used to come to the um, to the trade shows, and he would he actually was a ventriloquist. <laughs> so he no would way. show up with his dummy and do his <laughs> act. I actually saw him playing a bandsaw once. <laughs> oh, man. Did he do that? Amazing. Did he, he like do that at Gen Con? Carnival character, right? He's just incredible. I feel like I've seen him do that at Gen Con. I feel like he may have at one point. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, just amazing old guy. I mean, he's a, uh, and just you know, he still does the Zakheeder stuff. He sold the distributorship to somebody else many years ago, but um, still, still does the dice at Gen Con and wherever else. There you go. The Zakheedron. Yeah. I feel like I've. I, is it weighted? Is that how it stops? Yeah, there's like little balls inside of it, like little uh, ball bearings, mm-hmm. right? That uh, that weighted down and literally has a hundred sides on it, and it's only about like maybe an inch and a half, two inches across. So it rolls forever. <laughs> yeah. It eventually stops. You're like, okay, can we get somebody to look straight down on the top and give us a judgment as to what that number is? <laughs> so it's not necessarily the best in play, but it's just kind of a novelty <laughs> item. Yeah. Oh, as a novelty, it's fantastic, right? That is cool. Yeah, I know. And then you, then you, I've seen people who have I like different... the ones when Peter comes out and rolls the giant 20-sided die to open up every Gen Con nowadays. Yeah, I love that. It's fantastic. Yeah, just a, a good event. I've seen people who do uh, who have designed dice with odd numbers too, with like you know the twenty-seven sided die or something like that. Yeah, it's like yeah, now it's yeah. like a math problem to them to figure out how to get that many equal sides on a on a on an object. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. You know, so I'm, there was people doing ones that were like rolling for rolling lottery numbers, right? I think it was forty-two sides on a dice or something like that. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's the only reason you'd ever want this is for the lottery. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing else. There was, a, there was a 30-sided die that came out. There was a game designed around it called Bushido back in, like, the 80s. Yeah. That was the first time I think that all just took off, right? I love the idea of, a tw- like, the 24-sided die for, like, hours of the day and yeah, you know, exactly. the seven-sided die for, you know, days of the week to be like, what, you know? <laughs> Nowadays, what? you just punch all that into a computer. And, you know, it's like random number generated from one to whatever number you want. Yeah. But it's just so cool to actually have that physical thing in your hand. It is. And have that, there's a sense of drama when you roll a die, right? Yep. You just can't it by pushing a button. It's like it's always slow motion. 
The, exactly. Yeah, you got to watch it tip over. Yep. It's like uh, watching a ball roll into the cup in Caddyshack or something like that. <laughs> like a really old reference to a movie. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. I, I got it. Don't worry about it. But, sure. <laughs> the, uh, 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 you know, we just had uh, uh, PAX West where uh, and the Fathom event with uh, displaying um, – the game that Chris Perkins runs for the Acquisitions Incorporated guys. And, yeah. uh, you know, obviously there's drama around your table whenever an important die roll comes up and it's a 20 or it's a one. Everyone's like, oh, no. Right. But that writ large with 3000 people watching and everybody watching online, you know, or in movie theaters across the country, like it, that makes it really, really fantastic. Like just having that drama of what is the number going to be? No, it's not. It's terrible. You know, it's amazing. No, it is. I think that random element is really what makes it into a game as opposed to just a, an improv exercise, right? Because literally nobody knows what's going to happen, right, until that die roll comes up. You, you just, it could be one way or the other. It could be six different ways. You don't know. Um, but if you're, you're doing other stuff where it's just improv, it's like, okay, then we're making it up as we go along. It's fun. Yeah. But it's a whole different thing when you actually have that game element in there. The dice are a really neat thing. Somebody taught me this a few years ago. Dice are in games not because, of the, uh, because they add this random element, but really because they protect your ego. Right. Huh. So if it goes well, you can say, look what I did. And if it fails, you can say, damn, those dice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm trying to figure out ways to, like, uh, transpose that idea onto my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be something. You be can like, make oh, a look how awesome I am. Right. Or no, I'm sorry. It was just the taxes. The dice. I <laughs> Actually, I do that with my kids. Whenever they're arguing about stuff, I'm like, roll off for it. <laughs> oh, that's smart. Yeah. Ooh, that is that smart. Way, there's something that. fair. I don't have to decide who was the last one to do something or whose turn it is. I'm like, yeah, you're yeah. all equally good. Roll off for it. And then they get whoever loses that gets pissed. But what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. My uh, my kids are at an early enough age where we do the uh, Alexa, uh, the Amazon Echo uh, thing for like timers where like, you know, they're fighting over something. I'll be like, all right, this, this you know, you have it for one minute. Alexa, set a timer for one minute. And then they know when that, cool. that minute is up. Having that kind of voice activated uh, uh, kitchen timer essentially is is amazing. Yeah. Now, we're old school. We had to teach my kids a set of timer. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally different now. Parenting is totally different. <laughs> Back in my day. Exactly. Well, it was really good talking to you, Matt. That was a fantastic time. Always a pleasure. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. Very well done. I'm excited I to get this. To see it. I can't wait for everybody else to see it. Yeah, they're going to love it. I'm really excited about it. And honestly, I just had a great time working with you guys. It was uh, uh, the team of Wizards were just fantastic. The guys at Templar were also amazing. Uh, just really supportive from one end to the other. I think it's going to show in the book. There's Sweet. a lot of love in there. Yeah. Now I'm going to put you on the spot and tell you, uh, ask you when it's coming out. Uh, it's coming out November, first week of November, sometime I believe. I can't remember the exact date. Well but, timed. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to be at uh, Gamehole Con that first week of November. And I'll be signing copies of the book there because I know they're going to have it there. Oh, so. good. Okay. Perfect. So I think that's my only appearance for the entire rest of the year. I, I quit doing conventions when it gets cold. You know, <laughs> that Wisconsin thing. You don't want to leave your house. There it is again. It makes sense. Awesome. Well, we can't wait. To, we'll look for it uh, in November. Um, and uh, if everyone's in the area, you should go check out Game Hall Con because our other guest that we spoke to today, uh, which is on a different episode of this, is also going there, Wolfgang Bauer. So go check that out. Uh, all right. Well, great. Thanks, Matt. Uh, and uh, well, yeah, it was uh, everybody who worked on this book said they had a pleasure working with you too. So uh, hopefully that that bodes well for the future. Always good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Take care, guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Matt. That was really nice. I like him. I like him too. He is a uh, like the perfect podcast guest because he gets in all the information that you want him to get out in a very uh, uh, quick and succinct manner. And he knows release dates. <laughs> and he says nice things about the people we work with. I can't say enough good things about Matt Forbeck. Me neither. Yeah, he's really nice. I hope we get to work with him again. I'm going to give him some high fives and uh, uh, some cheese curds later on when I see him. And you can give um, Chris Perkins and Jeremy and Mike Merle's a book for him to sign when That's they go idea. to Game Hole Con too. That's great. For the girls. I want to go to Game Hole Con. Everybody's going to Game Hole Con. Are you going to Game Hole Con? No. I'm not going. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Everybody who's not anybody. Everybody who's cool is staying here in Seattle. Pretty much. Nice. We don't want to leave our houses either. Yeah. No. But anyway, he is he is a wealth of information and gosh, 35 novels. I know. That Just is cranking them it's out. It's like nonstop. Yeah, it's great. 
I have. I wouldn't ask him about this, but maybe we'll have him uh, talk about it the next time. But he did a uh, a novel that's set at Gen Con, like a murder mystery happens in, really at, at Gen at a gaming convention. That's that's modeled. Why didn't you Gen. ask him? About I totally this. forgot about it until just now. That's call why. Him back, right? All right, we're gonna call, get him back on the horn. <laughs> It'll be an excuse to talk to him again oh, for sure. That's so cool. Yeah, it's a neat thing. I think it was a Kickstarter or like a Patreon or something like that. So it was very very interesting. Cool. Um, but I love that. I love that idea. And us us cool gamers uh, need to. Uh, band together and not murder people at our conventions. And Dungeonology <laughs> has a very cool cover. It Speaking d- of murdering people, does it? The, the Mind Flayer? Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I love it. I think the Mind Flayer is your spirit animal. Discuss. I do love the Mind Flayer. Yeah. 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 Could be. You like to eat brains. And I see them everywhere. Like a spirit animal, yeah. in a way. Like in places, like yeah. around the world. There's one right behind. Oh, ah, my brain! The mind flare as my spirit animal. I mean, I guess a humanoid that has sentient isn't really a spirit animal. I kind of like them. Yeah. I like beholders too a lot. Ooh. Yeah. So you're just like you're from the underdark a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah. I think that makes sense. Menzo Baranzen. Mazanomo. Just saying. <laughs> you and Bob have that connection. We do. Yeah. We do, we do. All right. Well, it has been a pleasure speaking to Matt Forbeck and you. And you too, Tweedo. <laughs> I mean, Tizo. We're going to go with Tizo. That's right. <laughs> Craig Tizo. Before I Tizo you. Uh, all right. <laughs> no more dad jokes. I think we're going to sign off. Go uh, to iTunes, please, and rate this podcast. Not this one. Read this episode and tell Not us how this one in particular. amazing uh, uh, Matt Forbeck is. Find one of our really good ones. And try to ignore the hosts as much as you yes. can in your feedback. Just focus on the guests. Um, if you do, it does definitely let uh, other people know about how amazing this hobby is. Uh, and we'd love to get the word out to as many folks as possible. So that definitely helps. So. And we do have good guests. We, we, our guests are like the bread don't, and butter of the show. Don't take it out on the guests. Yeah. Yeah. Don't take it out. Take it out on me. Take I it out take on Tweedo. I haven't done a Burt impression since I read that review. I'll have you know. <laughs> there's there's one person on the internet listening to this episode who just was like, yes, Michelle accomplished. <laughs> yep. All right, well, we're gonna sign off with that. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. You're amazing. See you next week. Thank you. My pigeon. <laughs> 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 you're making me cry.